welcome to Reactive. My name is Khalil, and I'm here with Raquel. Hi! And Henny! Hello, hello. How goes it? <laughs> oh my goodness. Y'all, we just did two weeks in a row with all three of us. Wow. Indeed. Like the good old times. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, Back in the goodness. day. Oh boy. <sighs> it's alright. It's okay. It's amazing. It's okay. Yeah. Yes. So what's going on? How how are y'all doing? Very good. Um, I did something fun this weekend. I uh, I went to Miami and did uh, some brewery tours, which was freaking awesome. So there's all these these uh, microbreweries, and um, you can just go there to their tap room basically and at designated times they have tours and they show you the facilities which is really really neat but in one of these tap rooms i noticed a big screen tv on the wall and um, i think i've talked about this before but there's this app called untapped and it's um it's a bit strange um, basically it lets you track your uh the beers that you drink you can rate them and uh you know record all kinds of stuff with them it's basically like four square for beer whoever Maybe you know one of the two. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, this this project or this app started many several years ago as a side project of a beer enthusiast and a de developer, uh, or both. I don't know. So, um, they just built this app and it sort of exploded it, and they they kept it as sort of as a side project. And a little while ago, they got either they got funding or they got bought out, and. They started doing, you know, massive development on it. You can really tell that they they sort of put some resources behind this um, because it went sort of from a an okay app that had, you know, various issues and 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 certain problems to a pretty polished thing now. And um, what they've also done is they've expanded into the business side. So not only can the the beer nerds um, check in and do, you know their thing and see what's trending in the area, et cetera. They've also expanded this to basically let the breweries sort of build out their own brand inside of this, this ecosystem. And one of the things is, I guess, they can um, publish or keep, keep up to date their current, their current menu. And there must be sort of as a, as a sort of an added benefit or part of their package, um, they, they somehow they provide a dashboard that's customized for you. And so they had this huge giant TV on the wall that at first just looked like, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, their menu. Cool to have it on a, on a screen instead of like most of them have it um, sort of on chalkboards or whatever. But then it's then I saw like after a little while, these um, these messages constantly popping up at the bottom. You could basically see the various people that were there checking in their beers <laughs> And it would show up. And then I saw that it's basically, you know, at the bottom is powered by untapped. And um, so I just I just found that hilarious because, you know, here I'm sitting drinking beer, um, also, you know, a developer and thinking about, OK, all this API stuff going on in the background and what they've built out from the technology standpoint <laughs> and and just sort of basically kept the whole thing, you know, like it started out as as beer nerds and developers building something and it sort of stayed that way but now it's it's way more high tech and uh it's just to me i don't know it was just weird to see that um they've basically occupied this this space now that mm -hmm. um 
they're selling dashboards or the service essentially um, that you can customize your your menu and see the people that are in your bar checking in the beers. So I thought that was kind of hilarious. Um, anyway, that was the that was the tech tie-in for the story. So is it like is it like uh, Pokemon Go or something? No, it's basically just, it's essentially just, okay, I had this beer. This is my rating for it. You, you can, if you want to, check in a picture with that. So uh, you can take, I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then um, put notes in there. And that basically you have friends. Like um, uh, the guy that organizes uh, ScriptConf. Yeah, Stefan Yeah. There you go. He's like... Yeah, he's been doing this for years, and, and I talked to him about that as well when I met him. And um, so basically, he's a friend of mine on the app um, or in this system. It's kind of like Facebook. It's a mini Facebook. You can have, right. well, not really, but so it's social yeah, you check in your beers. Exactly. exactly. So your friends can like post you and stuff like that. And then you can you can create wish lists and, and stuff like that. So um, very nerdy. <laughs> anyway. Miami is awesome, and I, I used uh, I used uh, an Uber competitor. I used Lyft. So yes, yeah, you thanks did. For, thanks for the coupon, Raquel. You're you're welcome. You're uh, you're you're totally welcome. Because I I got a little notification. It was like Henning used Lyft, and I was like, okay. <laughs> but so so I looked at the pricing and how that works. Um, I don't know how those guys make money though. Like they're putting. They're putting miles on their own vehicle, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like we had a we had several rides that were about half an hour, um, mm -hmm. and it's like eleven dollars. What? Nothing. Yeah. How is that even possible? And then you know you give a you give a um, I don't know three or four dollar tip, but that's mm -hmm. like that's that's not not a great deal for the driver. I yeah. Feel like. No, I think I I, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, they take like a service charge out of that, right? And then mm -hmm. certain amount goes to the driver. I have no idea what the what the split is, but mm -hmm. um, that's not great. I mean, I mean, maybe I guess it always depends, right? If you did nothing before, or you you still, but you you have to factor in the cost of your vehicle because that's right. not that's not nothing, right? You're actually right. Like destroying your car all day long, getting right. tons of miles in there, and right. that costs something as well. So it's not like whatever's left over from your cut is not pure profit. You have to factor in your vehicle. So mm -hmm. interesting. Anyway, that that sort of was was odd because that you know it was a good deal for me, but <laughs> like well, okay. So I will ask this. Like, I I wonder if Lyft is maybe new to Miami, and that's why prices were a little bit lower to try to get people to use Lyft instead of their comp their competitors. I know that that happens sometimes. Like, they'll just oh. lower the prices. That's a promotional um, thing. Yeah. Or another another thing that could be happening is um, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember seeing an article at some point. I'll have to dig around the internet to find it. But it basically was like, there's no way people are making reasonable amounts of money on Uber yeah. and et cetera. Like it, there's just no way because no one's paying for your gas. No one's paying for the, you know, maintenance on your car. Um, 
and like car insurance, none of that is covered at all. So, you know, driving somebody around, I don't know. I and, and then and like, there's also all that time that you're not driving people around. Like yep. if you're just kind of driving around waiting for somebody to come, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> waiting for I, somebody yeah. to call you. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's we. I discussed that with my my buddy that we went down there and it's like, how are these guys making any money? But yeah, you know, oh well. Uh, uh, anyway, so that was lots of fun. If you ever yeah. get to Miami, it's pretty cool. Just don't drive. That's a lot less stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been to Miami twice. I don't think I look good enough for Miami. Be honest with you. It's very. <laughs> People are very, yeah, very conscientious about how they look. Yeah, and the cars. Oh my god, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the amount of money that's down there is utterly insane. It's ridiculous. It's yeah, ridiculous. It's Bentleys uh. and Lamborghinis all over the place. It's insane. <laughs> uh, I listened to Will Smith's "Welcome to Miami" song the other day. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's it's eerily accurate. Um, cool cool yeah i don't think that's it. that i couldn't uh i couldn't do anything with this app because my my taste in beer is extremely limited <laughs> like I, I really hate those all like this weird ale pale dale whatever's uh. all, this, all these weird flavors and it's oh i, I can't i can't i just can't peanut butter stout the other i was oh, like what god. is oh, like, a jalapeno, a <laughs> oh, jalapeno oh, no. pale ale i was like exactly I, and, it, and it, this beer is great it tastes like flowery and i'm like what go away <laughs> just give me a normal like uh, uh, well what i've what i've sort of um set on now is i like the ipas which i know you can't stand uh, probably, but um, and oh, then yeah, I hate them. I this hate them, totally. this new trend now is they're basically taking um, whiskey barrels or barrels of all sorts that have been, you know, that have had whiskey or bourbon or something like them in in them for like years, and they then age their their uh, stouts in there. And I have to say that is actually really good. Mm. At least I like it. <laughs> I'd rather drink the whiskey. I'll have the whiskey. <laughs> you know, pass me the whiskey and then do your thing with the beer in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the process was really interesting. I mean, it's all so automated. You know, there's there's certain things by hand, but everything, all the temperatures, I, it, the whole thing, the system is full of sensors and mm-hmm. basically driven or controlled by by computer systems. Are you so using Gulp um, for it? Or? I don't know about that. NPM <laughs> <laughs> scripts. Yeah. And you run... <laughs> Stout storage. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna admit that uh, ever since living in Germany, I personally feel that beer should be be made with only four ingredients, maybe five if it's a Hefeweizen, and that's there it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Those a are the four ingredients. Yes, they they don't they don't vary that much. You just can yeah like change the the um, what do you call it? concentration? I guess of certain things. Right, but right. Um, I'm 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 a purist, I'm a purist. <laughs> super hardcore. Just anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. If I had on tap, there was always, there would only be like two beers, like constantly being <laughs> put in. 
be super boring. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Cool. Uh, <laughs> what else is going on? Uh, what else is going on? So SoundCloud is apparently still dying or not dying. It's not so clear. SoundCloud oh. has been... Uh, so Chance the Rapper apparently called SoundCloud and tweeted on Twitter, I'm doing something with the SoundCloud thing, whatever that means. And some other artists put um, uh, some songs on SoundCloud in order to get more attention to SoundCloud. I don't know. But it's it's uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Apparently TechCrunch was covering this quite extensively and it seems like in 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 what they found out through leaks of some sort is that soundcloud bought themselves a little bit more time through the layoffs but it does not look that great apparently hmm. and it's interesting because yeah, there were multiple companies that were talking to soundcloud about acquisition already apparently mm. spotify uh, i think deezer uh, Twitter apparently also talked to them at some point, but they all backed off. And I've I've heard that before too. Like the, all these companies, they kind of they backed off because. And the, and what pe what what the press is saying is it's because, um, the business just doesn't look good enough. Like there there's no long term, you know, mm. viable business going on. Um, mm. So, <clears throat> yeah, so we'll see what happens with SoundCloud. still doesn't look that great. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that list of employees made its way into my, uh, uh, the VP of engineering at my company, too, and he said, hey, what do you think? <laughs> so, Whoa. <laughs> so really? that picture is, is going around. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, I, I can't imagine that a lot of them are still uh, looking. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> I told him we're probably a bit late to the game here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you Aww. never know. I mean, they might be taking their time. Yeah. That's <laughs> so hard. Yeah. Mm. But I, I, like you said last time, I don't think they're having problems finding places. So yeah. No. There are individually crappy stories, of course, and it's not easy. But yeah, yeah. Oops, but I mean, too terrible. Still we're still having uh, we're still yeah. pretty privileged as developers nowadays so. yeah <clears throat> yeah totally true yeah nothing to complain really uh, yep yeah. and so a, a week ago I found I found this really cool talk called you know what fuck drop downs <laughs> 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 it's a really cool okay, talk explain. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a cool. I mean, it's a talk. It's so good. It has its own website even already, um, <laughs> and it's there are two guys who to who um, held that talk at some conference. I have no idea. I stumbled over this over Twitter at some point, and uh, I thought, "Fuck drop, drop downs." That sounds really good. So I'm gonna click on that, and then. I, I I just skipped through the talk. It was it was really funny. They have a lot of um, examples of basically anti patterns, you know, that people do with drop downs. Because a lot of <clears throat> um, when you go into detail and actually once you know you get it visualized that, like that th through that talk, 
it it you also you know remember instances where that happened to yourself where like the drop down has for instance all the countries you know like choose your country and it has all the countries and your country and 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 for instance you live in the US it's a US website right and it says choose choose your country and then it starts at a you know <laughs> and yeah, you scroll forever until it gets to USA and stuff and, uh, and there's like tons and tons of these examples that are incredibly bad and lazy usage of drop downs or dynamic values where you know there's just one thing in it like why do you even have a drop down <laughs> and like um, uh, yeah and then, and then they also offer up like interesting or uh, better solutions for certain problems, you know, instead of using a drop-down, how can you solve certain problems better and put a little bit more intelligence into your code in order to serve, give the user a better experience. And, uh, and, but they're just making, basically, the, the, the title kind of says it all, like how they, they really go in on drop-downs. They have tons and tons and tons of, of examples from, from, from all kinds of different websites and they show them and they make fun of them and stuff and it's really it's a really funny talk but, but it actually adds a lot of value because <clears throat> it really makes you think about other ways of displaying these, these types of data. So it's a cool talk. I'll put it yeah, in the so they actually notes. do do um, like present alternatives or the better yeah. way or yeah they, yeah, okay. they present uh, better ways of uh, displaying certain types of data um, specifically yeah they offer solutions basically you know mm -hmm. it all comes, yeah it, all, it, it comes down to um, kind of intelligently thinking about what what you're trying to do and, and how your data looks and who is your customer or your user. And then, and for instance, sometimes it makes sense to display the different options just next to each other, you know, instead of in a drop down. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. also intelligent defaults, you know, like, and also sometimes remembering something, you know, caching something so you can show it to the user again because there was a preference or all kinds of different things. Very, very interesting uh, solution so it really goes into detail it's really good it's really good but it's also very fun <clears throat> nice cool very cool mm -hmm. yeah. ah yeah conference talks that just goes to show folks if you have a really really cool title it's more likely that Khalil will look at it <laughs> <laughs> that's right uh, <laughs> yeah, and it also sh it also goes to show that how important it is for talks to be entertaining as well. Oh yes. yeah, like yeah. Oh, the definitely. entertainment factor of talks is you can't underestimate it. It a good talk has to be entertaining as well as informative, and mm -hmm. it's super hard to do that if you if it, it doesn't come hard. to you naturally. You know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I, I think it is possible to learn how to create an entertaining talk, mostly because like entertainment is not it's not a one size fits all sort of thing. Right. Like some people can be entertaining in how they present, like just their their like body language and the tone of their voice and all that stuff. Um, some people are really entertaining by like being funny. Some people are entertaining by having really cool slides Um so there's lots of different ways of being entertaining. Um, so I, I think some of those can easily be like 
depending on the, on the type of person that you are, it's better to try to pick the type of entertainment that you're good at. But mm-hmm. that's, I think, one of the hardest things about being a speaker is finding your voice, finding the way that you are entertaining. Yeah. Because um, so many people try to be funny, for example, and it's so obvious that they're trying to be funny. And you're like, you're not funny. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm familiar with a few speakers who like are just dead set on being funny and they're so not funny. And it's gotten to the point where if I ever see them at conferences, I'm like, well, going to go to the other talk or <laughs> go find a coffee. It's so bad. It's so bad. I don't even oh, drink terrible. coffee. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and what I also don't like is when um, it has become so commonplace to use gifs in your mm-hmm. talks. Then it's people who can't uh, use them properly as an emphasis, where it's funny mm-hmm. or something, it gets a reaction. Uh, they that happens too often because everybody has done it or done it or some notable people have done it in a really, really effective way where the gifts really made, brought a point home or something and had an audience mm-hmm. laughing or reacting. Then, <clears throat> and it has become like a cool thing to do. I think it just, like everybody just does it. And then also mm-hmm. a lot of gifts get reused. And, uh, and, and then, just with some people it doesn't fit to their presentation style at all and then when 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 the gif comes on it just is weird because then they stop talking for a little bit to let the gif kind of do its thing but it doesn't work and nobody's reacting (laughs) it's just it's just weird yeah i think it's really but but i think what's catching on now is that people are a little bit more careful with the gifs that they choose And it's become mm-hmm. has become some sort of a visual language now, where it doesn't have to be uh, a joke necessarily. It's just something that people use, but people are a little bit more careful with what they choose, choose and and how many they choose, and all this stuff. Things getting a little better, but there was a time where, like, people had their slides full of gifts, and it was just like, yeah, okay, it's a gift. Go on. <laughs> I want to see this. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> um, conference speaking is hard, Very. Um, but worth it, I think. Um, yeah, so, um, oh, so remember Google Glass? Yeah. 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 It's back. I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have, um, I have a pair on right now. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, no. It's back. <laughs> uh, no, um, so apparently, uh, Google Glass, the Google Glass team, um, for those of you who may not be aware of what Google Glass is, uh, basically the idea was like these glasses that you could put on and you would have this tiny itty bitty screen in the top corner of one of your glasses and you could like, look at the internet while you were driving and then get into car crashes or something. Um, and, uh, and so it didn't really do that great. People were like really kind of weirdly not that excited about it. And then uh, people who wore it, especially in the Bay area, like you could tell who was trying to be cool and who wasn't. And it was, it, it was, it was just a little awkward. Um, 
needless to say, it didn't quite take off. And a lot of it, I think, is because they didn't really know what people would use it for. And so people had to kind of figure it out on their own or whatever. And it was actually pretty expensive. It was $1,500 for a pair. And so it wasn't really something that just anybody could have. It had to be mostly just devs. Um, but um, sometime around, I don't know, uh, yeah, about January 2015 is when they kind of disappeared. Um, you can still see some every once in a while. But um, Google has brought them back after doing a bit of research to find out how companies might use them. And so they have talked to uh, shipping companies, uh, hospitals, um, you know, companies that they basically use their hands a lot but might need more information than what they can very easily grasp. So if, for example, like you're a shipping company, um, they cite DHL as an example. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a person who's uh, delivering packages, things like that, it might be actually really useful to have a, a sense of, okay, we'll drop this package off there, drop this package off there, and blah, blah, blah. So they don't have to keep checking their, you know, paperwork or you know, iPad or whatever. Um, surgeons can use it to kind of get information about, um, about like, you know, anatomy while they're doing surgery, or they can capture information about their patient while they're having a consultation or whatever. So they basically called it Google Glass Enterprise Edition. And, um, and yeah, so it's, Returned, so it didn't but, it didn't actually go away then, right? They just sort of rolled out or rolled back or shut down the public yeah. consumer facing part of it, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. I think I think people were like, This is not really working and they were like, Yeah, you're right. And then they probably like had like a back room where they're like, No, we still think we still believe in your Google Glass. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> Yeah, because I I heard a I I think it was a podcast. I'm, I'm unfortunately I don't know which one. Maybe it was Hansel Minutes. Um, actually, yeah, I think it was Hansel Minutes about this particular topic. In that, you know, at the time when it came out, it wasn't just it wasn't quite ready yet because battery life and yada 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 and all this stuff. But they have sort of quietly been been working on this exactly what you're saying, and also for tasks, um, people exactly that need their hands free, but that need instructions for step-by-step things. So there's, um, there's some sort of company that uses it for repairs um, that basically if there's a set certain set of instructions or, or steps that need to be followed, they basically can call this up. And instead of having to leave through manuals, they basically have it in their Google glass to say, okay, the next thing you need to do is this, you know, um, so the, it's actually working quite well for them. So I thought that was cool. um, interesting as well. And, and supposedly there's to be there's supposed to be, you know, a lot of money pouring into this again. And um, so there's they think that this is you know it didn't go away or is not going away. It's actually going. It's just at the beginning. So we'll see. They've said that a few times, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's Google, so who knows? It has, um, yeah, it has it has its application. So <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, and then, uh, did you hear about the teleported particles? Yes. 
<laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> so, okay. So, teleportation, right? The idea is kind of like Star Trek where they do the little like, you know, beam me up, Scotty. And then you go from like a planet into the spaceship and then you can go from the spaceship to the planet or whatever. Um, so a few scientists in China have released a paper that said that they have teleported, and that's in quotes, a particle. Um, and so the particle is a photon. It's not an atom. It's just a photon, which is a, it's a particle of light. Um, photons are interesting. Um, and that they've, they've used a quantum satellite. So it, it's some news outlets are saying that they've teleported an object, which is totally not accurate at all. Um, and they haven't really teleported it. What they've really done is they've just kind of, they've, they've managed to make it so that information about that photon could be accessed by two observers. So they, they made it so that, I mean, this is like getting really scientific and physics-y, but uh, the idea is that they were able to send information from the ground to space uh, very quickly over uh, hundreds of miles, hundreds of kilometers. Um, and so like what that means is that there is a potential for like a quantum internet. Um, so if you think of like quantum computing as being like a, a thing that's that's been kind of talked about over the last several years, maybe even up to a decade, um, this is a quantum satellite, so we could hypothetically have like quantum internet, but like without any wires. So no wires, just information through the air. But yeah, so I, I read about this as well, and and you know they started talking about this this thing being able to occupy the same or the space in two different places or something and string theory. And I'm like, okay, my head exploded. <laughs> but what I want to know is like, okay, if it's like, how do they, even if it's a photon, like how do they know you were saying it's not the actual photon? Like how do they know that it went from here to there? That's what I want to know. I think, I think they got the info, like they, they sent, I don't know, they sent information or something. Uh -huh. um, let's see. <clears throat> Because yeah, it's a special satellite that is, is has has equipment on there, some sort of yeah measuring device or something that can can detect these things. So, but it, it seems very strange. I I just don't understand it. I guess. Yeah, basically they they claim that they could send quote unquote secrets from from like the ground to the satellite, but like yeah. like the thing is that normally when you send things through space. It's kind of more, um, think of it more like a radar uh, where you like, or like like a light bulb, right? When you when you turn on the light bulb, you can see light in a 360 or in a fully, in a, like the light is dispersed spherically around the bulb. So anybody can kind of see the light. Um, lasers are more interesting because you can send light from one point to another point but it's still a cylinder of, of information. So if anything that kind of cuts through that cylinder, you're going to see a circle or an ellipsis, uh, depending on how you, you cross that, that beam, but it's still a beam. So it's not like a pinpoint with quantum, uh, communication. You're actually saying from this specific singular point to that specific singular point, 
that's how I want this information to flow. Um, and so anybody coming through it probably will, will either completely impact any communication whatsoever. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Basically if, if you cut through that hypothetical, like it's weird because we're thinking in three dimensional space, right? Like spheres and cylinders. But if you think about it in just in terms of like a line, so it's more two dimensional instead of three dimensional, but it's, these points are in three dimensional space. This is, if this is making any sense whatsoever, please tell me to keep going. Um, keep going. I'm curious. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> but basically it's like, you can, you can send that information like without anybody else knowing about it. So, okay. So let's think of it in terms of a little bit more interesting, like real world data. So a radio signal, right? You've got that antenna at the top of the building. And as long as you have a radio set to the right um, uh, frequency, right? Then if you're, it doesn't matter where you are, as long as, you, as long as that signal can get to you and it's going to go kind of spherically out. So you can be on any of the buildings around that building that has the antenna and you can probably get the radio signal, right? Because it's just kind of like leaking spherically. Um, Similarly, uh, in in a laser situation, you're on a road. So anybody else who's on the road can probably get that same, like you can see the car going up and down the road. Um, If you're on the sidewalk, you might see the like like think of it like like as a ooh think of it as a tunnel. Um, so cars are going up and down the tunnel. If you are inside the tunnel, even if you're on the sidewalk that's inside the tunnel, you can see the cars going up and down, um, and and they're going all through that tunnel. But if you're outside the tunnel, you have no idea what's happening inside the car, like inside that tunnel. You don't know what cars are going through. You don't know what information is being passed. So it's it's a it's a more limited field of communication. In this quantum situation, what you have is is basically like the styrofoam cups and the rope, right? Um, where like I don't, I don't know if, if when you were kids or if you saw these in oh, comics, yeah. but like you could take two styrofoam like cups, soup cones, soup cans, yeah, or soup cans or whatever, um, and then take a string and and connect it, and then like the sound will go through the string, but only the the person holding the other end of the cup is going to hear you. Um, and so that's kind of what what this quantum idea allows us to, to have is it's much more one to one as opposed to a many to many situation of communication. Mm-hmm. So that's what we could kind of potentially like we're still way far off from getting this, but it could mean like super encryption. It could mean all sorts of interesting like information science and information technology at some future point. But no beaming yet. (laughs) (laughs) No. And that's why, that's why it's really annoying that they're calling it teleporting. Yeah. Because it's like, yes, we're sending the information from the ground to space, but it's really not actually, you know, it's not teleportation. Not, no objects have actually moved. Right. Um, It's just information. It's information that has been teleported, and that's not really teleportation as far as I'm concerned. So, I don't know. Maybe something got lost in translation, but that's what everyone's <laughs> calling it. They're like, teleportation! And I'm like, no. Yeah. Um, uh, it interesting. Makes it, it makes it a bigger story, I guess, for people who are not interested in the details. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary probably it's too since cool. it's China that did it. So oh, yeah. it's a bigger, you know, story. So mm-hmm. interesting, but good analogies. That makes sense, actually. So hmm. thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So. so I've been reading a little bit about um, development practices and processes and stuff like that. And I came across this um, paper. Um, about the process at Facebook. It's a little older. It's um, from 2013, but it was written by three people, and I believe Kent Beck is one of them. And uh, essentially, it sort of talks about the how Facebook does development and what kind of sort of principles or ideas they have. And some certain certain things of it stuck out. I mean, it's, uh, it's not super long, the paper, but it basically talks, it's sort of broken down into... Um, three parts. Um, the first one is sort of perpetual um, development, essentially that the, or stating that the Facebook as a product or as a thing is, is really never done. So it, it, compl- it never ends. So there's no, like, at least on a, you know, overall or bigger scale, there's no, okay, we're going to build feature X or product X and we're going to do that. It's going to take this long and then we're going to be done and it'll be finished. No, it's like a continuously always changing thing and it sort of gets them in a, in a different kind of mindset <clears throat> um, and then that sort of plays into uh, they talk a little bit about how they do testing and um, how they push new features they have this huge um, thing they, they call the gatekeeper they can essentially target specific users for new releases and um, it sounds very sophisticated. So they can basically roll out new things constantly and different new things to different groups of users and sort of try them out and either roll them back or then, you know, continuously roll out this new feature to to everyone eventually. So the last part that, that is the one that sort of caught my eye and I'm sort of interested in is, is basically they talk about the personal responsibility of developers. Um, they at this time of, of when they wrote this, they had about a thousand developers, and um, they had three release engineers who orchestrate the daily and weekly uh, software releases. And they do not have a separate quality assurance team. So, and and the way they justify this or they say they don't need it is because the developers have a higher or certain sense of personal responsibility, meaning that they they own their code and they're responsible for it and they will, um, you know, assure its quality and fix it if it's necessary. Um, so I have worked in a place where there is um, a dedicated quality assurance um, team or was one. <clears throat> and... I, I can't really agree with that statement that it makes it obsolete or you think that if they, you know, if, because I guess what they're saying is they're trying to say is if you had a, a dedicated quality assurance team, the mentality of the developer could be that, okay, I am, you know, going to throw this, I'm going to make this thing and then throw it over the wall and have these other guys um, or people basically test it and make sure that it's what it needs to be and I don't. I don't have to be like super, super um, accurate or whatever because there's sort of a, I have a safety net, right? So that's sort of the justification that at least I read out of this. But my personal experience wasn't really like that at all. I did have a quality assurance team. And when I started working there, I, I worked at this place for like four years. And so probably the first year and a half or so, 
I was a constant visitor <laughs> on the other end of the cube farms where the uh, quality assurance team was to basically, um, I, you know, I, I, I guess I was summoned there to, um, you know, explain certain things or, you know, show certain things and, and be shown um, certain defects that uh, my code had. And I didn't really see this as a, as a great thing. Um, I mean, it was always said, you know, finding defects is great and all, but I didn't really appreciate or enjoy that. Not appreciate that. I, I didn't enjoy having to be over there all the time and <laughs> seeing basically the things that didn't work or I didn't do very well. So I basically changed the way I, I develop software. I mean, there was a bit bit of support from the team, but I was sort of the one of the first people to, in, in this particular team at least, start um, you know, with unit testing and automated testing, et cetera. And by probably year two, end of two, beginning of year three, I had had my code, you know, I felt like a personal responsibility for this, not out of some sort of, um, you know, outside drive or whatever. It just, you know, I want, I didn't like <laughs> the way things were going. So I, I, I strived to make them better. And um, it was really funny because in one of the postmortems of, of, you know, um, this development uh, part, basically, the the comment from the QA team was, yeah, we didn't see Henning very much, you know, in the last six months. And I thought that was just really, really cool. So I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about this. Um, because when they say that, yeah, they, they, they value this or instill this in developers, it's like, I don't even know how you would do that. Like, how do you go about um, ensuring that developers have you know, or take responsibility for their work or pride in their work, I guess is I guess how I would call it too, because if that doesn't come from within you, like how how do you do that? You lead by example or any mm -hmm. ideas? What's your experience there? Curious. I mean, I have to say that like <laughs> I mean, I certainly expect my engineers to like care about the quality of their work, right? Like People who are like, eh, I'm just going to push to prod. Who cares if it's like kind of broken? Because then that puts support on fire and, you know, yeah. all, all that sort of thing. Like that's that's definitely not cool. And I would never want to hire people who do that. Um, that said, I mean, I really wish we had a QA uh, at NPM. We, we don't. We don't have quality assurance teams. Um, so we have to do our own QA, which uh, definitely takes extra time and, and things like that. I don't know. I think so much of it really depends on, on wanting, on like being clear about what the goal of any sort of thing is so that, um, everybody's on the same page, right? Like if everybody, Oh, there was a really cool quote I saw this morning. Let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, okay. Um, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. <laughs> like the idea being that like maybe instead of trying to bring the horse to water so that it'll drink, you it, you you like wait for it to get thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> give it salt <laughs> yeah right right yeah give it a super salty super salty and, and super dry food and it'll yeah. be like oh my god i'm so thirsty 
Um, yeah. Because then it'll be like, where's the lake? I'm going to the lake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, like I said, I just, I read this and I, I like the idea. I just, how do you instill that in people? I was like, okay. They have like a six-week boot camp, I guess, that they they put everyone through, every developer. And I guess they, they sort of, you know, Very explain or, or show them <laughs> what's important. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of my biggest, biggest uh, point of interest in this article because, yeah, um, yeah we're dealing with that a little bit. Uh, at our work as well as sort of trying to reorganize things and, and get people on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing, seeing how others do it. And I kind of felt like reading this, that um, NPM would be similar to this, just on a different scale. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like, okay, you have, and, and I don't think this is really true, you know, across the board at Facebook either. It's not like they don't plan anything. You have to say, well, we are doing, you know, we think this is going to work. We're going to plan this out. We're actually going to assign people to it and do the work. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, we're just going to do whatever, you know. So there is there is some sense of a beginning and, an, and well, maybe not an end, but well, it kind of is, right? You have to have milestones of some sort. Otherwise, you can't can never organize anything. But then... You know, I'm like thinking, how do I apply this or how does this apply to what I'm doing where we have mm-hmm. very specific goals in mind? You know, we want to build X and here's what we need to do in order to get that there. And there are going to be certain expectations as far as deadlines are concerned. Um, mm-hmm. And that stuff somehow has to be met. So there's a, a certain amount of planning involved. And um, yeah, yeah well- so... Here, here's a here's a, a thought because um, at npm I would say 80% of our projects are like planned out at least to the best of our abilities um, with a with the product goal where we're like okay we want to build um, we want to build orgs right or or something like that like that's a pretty right. big thing it's really important it's essential to the business. Um, but then the other 20% of the projects are kind of like, a, all right, you know what we need to do. We need to keep the registry up. We need to ensure that we can scale. We need to, um, enable people to have a good experience using the CLI. So like NPM five was not actually a, a product goal. It was not something that, um, the CEO or the CTO came in and said, all right, CLI team, make it faster. Like that was mm-hmm. never explicitly stated. Um, but here's the interesting difference between those two things. One, like the, when, when we're doing things like orgs where we're like, okay, we have this product that we want to build and we need to send it out there because we need to get, we need to like, we've, we've identified a, uh, a user pain point and we want to create a, a solution that, you know, at least on some level, people will pay for because we need the money so that we can pay for our rent and people's salaries and all that stuff. And we can grow and blah, 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 blah. Right. So like there's an actual business need for that. Um, and, and I'm not saying that there's no business need for NPM to have a really fast CLI, but it's not like the CLI does not, like people don't pay for it. Um, and so there's no real, like any any product changes that they make that they like 
you know, make a faster NPM, all that stuff. Uh, fantastic. But there isn't a bunch of oversight that's like, okay, if we don't do this, then we're not going to make the monies. And without the monies, we can't do the things that we have set aside for our own goals in terms of growth and sustainability and all that. Um, which then leads me to kind of question, like, so like the main driver there is how important is this to the business and how essential is it? Um, Facebook, as far as I can tell, is never going to go away. It's never going to suddenly lose money. It's just, it's, it's rolling in the monies. Um, so basically whatever they want to come up with, whatever they want to build, it's like, cool, have fun, do whatever you want. Um, it's maybe not, I'm, this is just one perspective, one potential idea of like why they might do things this way as compared to other companies. Um, interestingly, GitHub for a long time was really work on whatever you want, right? It was like the whole idea, the whole ethos behind GitHub as a company for the first five to seven years of its existence was, you know, do whatever you want. We trust you. We hired you. And here are all the things that we're working on. Go for it. And that meant that some people were like, okay, well, I want to build this product because I've seen people having issues with whatever, like their pain points, I want to solve them. Let's fix that. And the beauty of that is that you end up having certain people who are like really excited about certain solutions, then they'll work on those. And then other people will be excited about other solutions and they'll work on those. And it's this idea of like developer happiness. I'm working on problems that I care about. Um, but over the last two to three years, they very much, GitHub has kind of turned the tides on that and they've realized, wait a second, we need to have a little bit more consistency and a little bit more of a um, like centralized understanding of what matters to this business, how are we going to keep growing, uh, how do we keep addressing the things that the users need uh, and stuff like that. So they've, I know that they've moved towards more of a product and project management at least that's been their goal is to move more into that um so yeah i don't know yeah i mean that's that's that makes sense and the thing that with facebook is is really it is it is sort of kind of um different than most companies especially when it comes to scale and also for you know growth it's um it's pretty pretty crazy but the yeah one of the, so aside from that the other thing I found interesting is what they were saying is that the, basically all Facebook employees are testers um, so mm -hmm. they don't really have a separate thing but because everybody uses it themselves there's a lot of internal you know testing as a sort of a side effect mm -hmm. and that uh, basically um, they they work on a single code base like there's no branching and merging which is kind of odd but. Uh, um, not exactly sure how that's supposed to work, but they they specifically stated that they do not have branches and they don't merge stuff in. And I guess the the main um, code base is actually lives in Subversion still for various reasons. At least it did in 2013. Who knows what it is now? But um, 2013 was four years ago. Yeah, People exactly. Have that's actually a really that's a high school. That's yeah, that's ages ago. <laughs> uh, Facebook is doing something that they call a hacker way. Is that also in the book? Um, they do. They do state that they have the one of the main ways to to basically 
drive innovation is to have hackathons and that the no no no, the no, time- no that's not what it's I'm about. sorry it's called the hacker way this is the, the okay. way of, of writing code or writing products it's basically constantly writing code constantly shipping quickly iterating small iterations yeah. and then have a constantly changing product over a long time and improving it and there is actually a letter that uh, Mark Zuckerberg wrote and it says here that uh, so one thing that's interesting even if they work on a uh, one code base there's there's a way that they kind of um, they don't need the branching because they're doing, doing something else so it says here the hacker way is an approach to building that in uh, an approach to building that involves continuous improvement and iteration. Hackers believe that something can always be better and that nothing is ever complete. They just have to go fix it, often in the face of people who say it's impossible or are content with the status quo. Hackers try to build the best services over the long term by quickly releasing and learning from smaller iterations rather than trying to get everything right at, um, all uh, right all at once. To support this, we have built a testing framework that at any given time can try out thousands of versions of Facebook. We have the words, done is better than perfect, painted on our walls to remind ourselves to always keep shipping. Ah, interesting. So they have a testing framework that tests thousands of versions of framework uh, of Facebook at any given time. And they... And they do, um, and they ship all the time and make small iterations. And you can see it's very interesting to see how Facebook is actually changing slowly by slow, slowly and slowly and slowly. Because there's no, you can see how they reworked different parts of Facebook, you know, like the Messenger and how that's integrated slowly but surely in different ways. And uh, the designs, the icons changed, and like everything is like slowly morphing. Is, it's super interesting, and I also think that this actual this hacker way, which is also something that has been um, propagated by Eric Meyer, who is this functional programming guru type who worked at Microsoft for a while, um, and uh, yeah, he's been he's been giving talks about where he was going in on Scrum and basically basically making fun of Scrum and saying that the right way to do that stuff is the hacker way, where it's, where it's basically you just do it. You try it, and you know you ship it, and then you see if it works and, and stuff like that. And if it doesn't work, you fix it. It's basically that type of of working, which I think is very interesting. And it, and it, it I think it's, it's something that that really empowers developers. It gives developers the possibility to to see their work in the real world really quickly, and you know have their work like be tested against real users or in that testing framework or whatever it's you can be very productive in a very short time and i think that is that is uh you know gratifying as a developer right and you have the opportunity to learn from mistakes very quickly exactly as well too, yeah. Yeah. and i think that is the thing where that gives you maybe a sense of more ownership or more responsibility as a developer because your code affects mm-hmm. real the real world very quickly yeah, we have a QA. We have a QA department at um, at Einstein where I'm working, and um, yeah, I must say it is it is good to have it because I don't know, like I don't. I guess if if you know the whole the whole developer team works in this kind of hacker way, kind of way, and you have this elaborate testing framework, and you can do these type of things, 
it's a whole different thing. I think the whole mindset is different. I, whole, I think the whole um, just w how you work is different. You release smaller things to live, to production. And um, it's easier to do those releases. For us, releases are always quite, um, you know, a, a big thing. Like there are th a lot of steps to go through. There's a staging area, QA area, and then a pre-live and the live, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and most like and, and mostly those releases are you know bigger releases with more features and bug fixes and stuff. <clears throat> and in this case, if you do it in this way, I think it's really good to have a QA team because they always find lots of different things that need mm -hmm. fixing before it goes live, you know. And, and I think this this hackerway hackerway thing is kind of is kind of a QA system in itself a little bit. It kind of does the job of. But do, does that mean that that problems or or defects get into into the into the wild more often and just get fixed really quickly? I think. And so I that the. Might be, I mean, you 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 might you might just push smaller things to life, right? You push yeah. often in small iterations and yeah, I don't know if, you know, like and then you test with a small group and that's when you catch bugs, I guess, and you fix it and it goes quick because mm -hmm. continuously deploy, deploy, deploy. That's, right. uh, that's something that also you know, comes out of the star startup world a little bit, um, this yeah. kind of continuous deployment kind of idea. And it, it, it allows it allows developers to really move really quickly which is nice i can i can see how how that makes sense you know i think also github yeah. is doing something similar as well i guess i was always a sort of under the impression okay that maybe in startup land or or when teams are small but facebook is showing that they're doing this with you know over a thousand developers yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's pretty impressive yeah but if the teams if the teams themselves are smaller then yeah, um, exactly. You can do a lot more with a lot of tiny teams because then yeah. each little team is kind of like its own little startup. Because also, yeah, right. Facebook is not only Facebook. Facebook is Instagram. Facebook is WhatsApp. Facebook is something else. Mm -hmm. and, Wait, yeah. Facebook is WhatsApp? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, they bought it at some point. No, That's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. And you can see yeah. there, there's little things coming into WhatsApp now that are Facebooky and. Uh, Mm. Yeah, uh, and somebody uh, Andre Stoltz he sent out a tweet <clears throat> with statistics. Statistics, good. He's he's working on this uh, Scuttlebutt client for iOS or something, and he's he's putting a lot of his free time. Or yeah, he just he's just working on open source currently, and he did a lot of research. He's a big Facebook pro uh, 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 opponent. Like he f he feels Facebook is too intrusive and spying on everybody and all this stuff. And he did, um, so he, he did a lot of research and found things out about the web. And he, he posted one graphic and he said that actually since, since a year or so, statistically, by this statistic, whatever that statistic is, 100% um, of all the users who use the internet use either Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp. So 100%. <laughs> wow. Of all the users, yeah, according to that statistic, which is which is crazy, a hundred percent of all the users in Facebook basically has them. We have all the users. Holy cow! No, hold on. I'm trying to think. I'm like, wait a minute. My husband doesn't have Instagram or Facebook. 
But does he have... No, I don't think he has WhatsApp! Uh, There's one! Does he have <laughs> internet? Him is soon. he using the internet at all? <laughs> he is! He uses the internet every day, wow. in fact. Have a Slack channel. <laughs> or a Slack group. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. okay, he's the one. He's the one that yeah, yes. fell out of that statistic. One out of seven or whatever, four billion people. Yeah. Uh, so minuscule number. Yeah. <laughs> I know we're running out of time, but just to, to, to touch on that point that you made, you know, lots of little teams within Facebook and you can still do a lot of stuff and be flexible there. But like the overall organization and the product itself still because of its size, you know, has a certain level of complexity and it seems like they have even... You know, in normal cases, or you would think intuitively that things would have to sort of slow down because of that. But I guess they proved the opposite, that they can still do exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. um, you know, be extremely fast, nimble, and, and even in spite or in spite of this, this huge size. So, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Alrighty. Well... Okay. Um... I think it's time to wrap up, but uh, uh, we can keep the conversation going on our Slack group if people want to, you know, talk about some of this stuff. Um, come hang out with us in our Slack channel. You can find the link to join us in our show notes, which you can find at reactive.audio. Yes, and uh, I'm H. Gladdergots on Twitter. Yay, I got it right. And uh, <laughs> uh, if you like this show... <laughs> If you like the show, tell a friend about it or leave us a, a rating that way um, in iTunes. Other people can find us and uh, listen to the show as well. And information on how to do that, you can find that in the show notes that Raquel mentioned. And I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, and uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at ReactivePod. And I'm Khalil Tweets on Twitter. And I'm RockBot on the Twitters, and sometimes I check it out every once in a while. <laughs> but I'm always in the Slack channel, so, you know, come hang out, come chat. All right, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.